Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. You know, I remember when I was uh, six, seven years old, it was my first exposure to a Rubik's Cube. Uh, those things are still around, right? You remember Rubik's Cube? You had to match up all the sides in the same color. And I was playing with this thing, and I remember distinctly two, these two little squares that just wouldn't cooperate with me. I'd had the whole thing worked out except these two little squares. And I would undo it and try to do it again, and, and I don't know how long I was at it, but finally, in my frustration, I, st- I just decided to scrape off the stickers and, and realigned them that way. And like, yeah, I did it. You know, my mom saw me do the whole thing. She's like, that's cheating. And I was like, whatever, mom, I'm, I'm done with this thing. So I was frustrated, ruined the Rubik's Cube for everybody, anybody else who wanted to use it. Um, but our relationship with the Lord could often feel like that Rubik's Cube in that we could get one side of Jesus right and the other side all wrong. Or there's an aspect of Jesus that we know really well and another aspect that we don't know quite as well and maybe even neglect. And we could even trace some of our personal issues back to who we think Jesus is. So, for example, I had a friend at Biola and she told me one time, you know, I know I'm forgiven by God, but I don't feel like I'm forgiven by God. And in that instance, hey, maybe you need to know Jesus as your priest and redeemer a little bit better. Then you have other people on the other side of the spectrum that maybe presume upon God's grace and actually like the idea of Jesus as priest and redeemer, but not so much their king. And there's still aspects of their lives that they refuse to submit under his lordship. So this year in our Advent series, we hope to paint a portrait of Jesus that's accurate, that's fuller and clearer for you this month. Specifically, Jesus filling his role as prophet, priest, king, and lamb, and how him fulfilling those roles directly impacts our lives. And today, I was asked to teach on Jesus the prophet, and I want to emphasize the definite article here, the prophet, because Muslims would believe he was a prophet, but he's so much more than that. He's our ultimate prophet because he's also our priest, king, and lamb. So I think a good place to start is actually a working definition. Well, what is a prophet? A prophet is a person appointed by God to represent God to the people. I'll say it again. A prophet is a person appointed by God to represent God before the people. See, in the Old Testament prophets, they had a special encounter with God, and as a result, a message directly from God, much like Moses did on Mount Sinai. But see, not anybody could be a prophet because there were false prophets. They had to be appointed by God. And prophet simply means revealer because he communicates truth. He's a revealer of God, who God is, what his will is. He's a window into God's character and God's primary means of communicating to his people. And they also prophesied. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they carried along by the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 1.21. So not only were they appointed by God, but they were empowered by God, by his spirit. They were a mouthpiece of God that spoke God's will, and God spoke through the prophets. He sent by God and given the authority to speak the very words of God, and their role often was to confront the people to sound the warning, to call them to repentance in a life of faith and obedience. Another role a prophet fulfills is that 
predicting the future, prophesying mainly concerning Israel's destiny, and they gave promises of both judgment and restoration, continued, uh, conditioned upon their faith or unbelief. And there were new revelations given that they were purvy to into the plan of God and the unfolding of human history, and even at the end of the age, things they spoke about that they didn't even quite fully comprehend. And most importantly, they all pointed to Jesus, the coming Messiah, that one day he would come and establish his kingdom. And John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So how does Jesus fulfill this role as prophet? Well, if a prophet is somebody appointed by God to represent God before the people, Jesus represents God as God. He is sent by God the Father and appointed and anointed at his baptism. And he's fully and completely human. You needed to be a human being to be a prophet. And Jesus being both God and man makes him uniquely distinct and superior to any other prophet. Jesus is not only the revealer of truth, but he's the final revealer of truth. For he says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. See, he brings the truth. He is the truth. He heals us with the truth. And he's the one that all the other prophets spoke of and pointed to. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, Acts 3, 18. See, Jesus was not only the subject of prophecy, but he was the object of prophecy. And now the primary means by which God communicates to us. And long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Hebrews chapter one, verse one and two. And like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus had a message, but he wasn't merely a messenger. And instead of saying, thus saith the Lord like the prophets, he could begin divinely authoritative teaching with the amazing statement, but I say to you. And the word of the Lord came to the Old Testament prophets. Jesus spoke of his own authority as the eternal word of God who took on flesh and perfectly revealed the Father to us. For he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. His words had all the authority of God and whereas the Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus in the coming kingdom, Jesus came and said the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent of your unbelief. And the Old Testament prophets called people to repentance and they were killed for their message. Jesus was also killed for his message. But unlike the deaths of the Old Testament prophets, his death achieved life and life abundant. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And now we're justified by his blood and saved by the wrath of God. Romans 5, 8, and 9. See, prophets called people to repent, knowing they themselves needed to repent. But Jesus called people to repentance, knowing that he is the one that will sacrifice himself, making it possible for people to repent. And Jesus Christ, through the cross, reveals the absolute glory of God in a way no prophet ever could have, because he reconciles both the holiness and the love of God on the cross. In the one place in history, in the one place in the universe where the holiness and the love of God shine out with equal brightness 
is on the cross and the wrath and justice of God is satisfied while simultaneously displaying God's love and mercy. And now there are no new revelations because the full revelation of God has been revealed by the person of Jesus and the full counsel of his written word given to us which gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So he's more than our prophet which makes him our ultimate prophet. And Jesus as prophet shows that God still speaks to us and we're a people that desperately need to be spoken to, speaking directly into the longing of purpose and meaning which is intrinsic to us all. For you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Today we're gonna be in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter, of all people, uh, is gonna function very much like a prophet calling the Jewish people to repentance and pointing them to the ultimate prophet, Jesus. I think some quick background uh, before we get into the passage. So Peter and John were at the temple to worship and there was this crippled beggar and he was healed. And all the people were amazed, came running to him and and they were amazed and astonished. Uh, But Peter uses this opportunity, much like he did at Pentecost, to preach the gospel. And he redirects them their attention to this crippled beggar, but to Jesus. And let me tell you, he doesn't pull any punches. He tells them, hey, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. You disowned the Holy One, the Righteous One, and you asked a guilty murderer to go free and instead had an innocent man killed. And that innocent man was the author of life. But God reversed all of it by raising Jesus from the dead. And Peter says this resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that healed this crippled beggar. And Peter was filled with this boldness and a godly defiance. Even later in the book of Acts, he was told to stop preaching this message, and he said no. Remember Peter's boldness. This is going to be important later. So Peter's sermon here, he exhorts people to repent and to receive forgiveness through faith in Christ. And even though they killed Jesus is all part of God's sovereign plan all along. And that if you repent, there's total forgiveness and a time of refreshing now that we're right with God. And finally, we would eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ where he's gonna establish and make all things new. So repent so that your sins may be wiped away and receive relief from the burdens of this life from the Lord as we wait for ultimate restoration in the coming kingdom. So would you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter three, please. Acts chapter three. And starting in verse 17, Acts chapter three, 17. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. Speaking of the killing of Jesus, they acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And the rulers here he's talking about is the high priestly families, the members of the Sanhedrin who indicted Jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to Pilate for trial and execution. So Peter here, his sermon is Christ-centered and redirecting the attention of the crowd to Jesus. And despite the opposition of ignorant people, God still accomplished his purposes. And here in verse 18, he says, but what God by the mouth of all the prophets 
that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So those, so here, interestingly, Peter's view of fulfilling prophecy wasn't due to, to God's foreknowledge of history, but his actions in history. See, God doesn't merely know events in advance and he just tells what's happening. No, he makes history, he creates history, and therefore he fulfills his promises in history, fulfilling his purposes, showing that he is faithful. So the coming of the kingdom of God will come regardless. The ignorance of men did not stop and will not stop the plan of God. See, the Lord isn't passively observing history. No, he's making it happen for his purposes, done in his timing. So Peter links God's involvement, God's activity, God's fulfillment to the death of Christ with the promises of the prophets of old. And even in chapter two, Acts, Peter quotes Psalm 16 where he says, for you have not abandoned my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Speaking of Jesus' resurrection, that he was dead and buried and before corruption could touch his body, he was resurrected, fulfilling prophecy centuries ago. And even in 3.13, Peter identifies Jesus as the servant of the Lord who exalted by God and suffered and died, linking him back to Isaiah 52 and 53 where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. So Jesus' death wasn't some arbitrary, tragic incident that happened because of the result of ignorance of of people in Jerusalem. No, the death of Christ, the Messiah, represented the fulfillment of prophecy that was announced centuries ago by the Lord through his prophets as an integral part of God's plan of saving and restoring his people. And the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead an unprecedented indeed only God could accomplish, the apostles testified to the reality that Jesus physically rose from the grave after his crucifixion. And they used that boldness to be able to reclaim the gospel. So here, even though God's sovereign plan is unfolding, Peter shifts from God's sovereignty to our personal responsibility to repent. See, God's call to repentance requires us to respond, and if God asserts that we are guilty, we need to acknowledge that he is right. In verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So even though the act of killing Jesus was done in ignorance, that's no excuse. There's still a call for repentance. There's not this excuse, oh, I didn't know he was the Messiah. I didn't really know he was the prophet everyone was talking about. No, there's no excuse. And in order for forgiveness to take place, there must be an acknowledgement of that error and the confession of that sin and a turning away from your old life to God for mercy. Do you ever think that God can't forgive you? Maybe some of you struggle with, with something you've done or something that you're doing. And you feel guilt about it and like, oh, God could never forgive me. Well, these people killed Jesus. And these people had some direct involvement in the actual physical death of Christ. And Peter says, repent and receive forgiveness. There's still an opportunity for grace. Now, I don't know what you've done, 
but I don't think it's as bad as actually killing Jesus. And there's grace and opportunity for that. And that's the gospel of grace. And because of the work of Christ, it's not penance, but repentance that is required to receive grace. Not trying to earn favor, but simply receiving favor with gratitude. And repentance involves a change of direction. It involves turning away from views about God and what we think he should do in our time. But turning to God is is the truth of his revelation in Jesus. Turning away from self-determination, self-reliance, being completely autonomous, things which God regards as evil and wicked and turning to God for his grace. And when repentance happens, there's three promises Peter notes here that happens, three promised of blessings. One is total forgiveness in verse 19 where our sins will be blotted out. And two, in verse 20, there's a time of refreshing that happens when we repent, that comes directly from the presence of God. And finally, in verse 21, that Christ is ultimately gonna return and make all things new. And that inheritance that we have is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So here, total forgiveness in verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out. You know, this word blotted out is interesting. It could be translated wiped out or, or washed off or erased or completely obliterated. You know, it's used two times in the book of Revelation. And one time it's used when God wipes away our tears at the end of the age. And the second time it's used is when Christ refuses to erase our name from the book of life. So that's what we have when we repent. And just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied long ago, repentance now is under the new covenant. The new covenant, which, which is now not under the old covenant, but the work that Jesus has done, his blood shed for us. And with the wiping away of our sins comes also a time of refreshment, a time of refreshing directly from the Lord because now that you're right with God, you're refreshed. You receive relief from the burdens of this life. You think of your work life and your family life and relational difficulties, work difficulties. It could be hard. It could be burdensome. But when we're right with God, there's relief. And we could redefine success, not according to the world, but according to a kingdom perspective, and we can rest in him. And finally, verse 20 and 21, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, even Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. So this is his second coming, where Christ will restore creation, restore our bodies, Universal restoration is still yet future when Christ reigns as king supreme on earth and his kingdom throughout eternity. We eagerly wait for that. Much like the Old Testament prophets of old waiting for his first coming, now we wait for his second coming. Hope for the future that gives us strength for today. And here Peter continues. From verse 22 through 26, Peter starts building his case Much like a prophet, he sounds the warning. He begins to build his case from Scripture. And he begins by quoting a passage in Deuteronomy. And here, let us read in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord will raise 
up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, I was just thinking, like, well, why would he quote this passage at this point in his sermon? So I think some background is important to establish here. So what was going on in Deuteronomy 18, which he quotes it, some historical context here. So the, what was happening is the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land. And if you remember, God's primary means of communicating with his people were through the prophets. But Moses wasn't going with them in the promised land. So a natural question would come up like, hey, well, who's going to tell us what God wants? What's his will is? Well, what are we going to do when we enter the promised land? So Moses here says, hey, God will raise you up a prophet and that you should obey him. So the original hearers would have said, okay, so we're going to go. It's not going to be Moses, but it's going to be somebody else. And then at the end of chapter 18, Deuteronomy, he even gives the vetting process of prophets, right? So it's very simple. Hey, if somebody says, thus saith the Lord and it happens, well, they're a prophet of God. If they say, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't happen, well, they're a false prophet. Stone them, okay? Sometimes I love how God governs his people with such efficiency. There's not a lot of red tape to cut through there. It's fairly black and white, right? If, hey, it didn't come through, stone them. Not only that, every Israelite, once the true prophet was confirmed that that is a prophet of God, every Israelite was held accountable to listen to that prophet. So not only do they sound the warning, but they must listen to them. So, it belongs, so that was the situation. And here, Peter takes this and repurposes it for something else. Now, something to note about prophecy that they could have this dual meaning, meaning that the immediate context would have met what the original hearers have said. But there's also a second purpose of future context where future listeners would hear. And Peter says, oh, you know Moses, when he said that prophet was coming, he meant Jesus. And not only did he mean Jesus, you needed to listen to him and repent. You're gonna be held responsible for, for not repenting. And even though you're part of the covenant people, repentance is still required. So continued membership in the people of God was dependent upon a positive response of the prophet Messiah. And if you refuse to repent, the alternative is destruction. So he's sounding the warning, and the warning must be taken seriously because eternity is at stake. And just because you're part of the covenant people uh, doesn't mean that you don't need to repent. You killed Jesus. So Peter quotes this passage in Deuteronomy for because Moses said the Messiah prophet was coming in these last days, in the person Jesus. And secondly, Moses is the one that issued the strong warning. You have to obey this prophet. Listen to this prophet. And if you didn't receive this prophet, you're no longer part of the covenant people of God and no longer part of the blessing that he promised to us. So Peter continues to build his case. Even Moses said this, that Jesus was coming, and you killed him. He came, Jesus came, and you killed him. So the most revered prophet, Moses, Peter is using to state his case. And here in verse 24, he continues, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him 
also proclaim these days. So not only Moses, but also Samuel. And if you remember, Samuel was the prophet that anointed David as king and started the Davidic kingdom. And here this phrase, these days, uh, the plural for days, probably indicates that Peter wasn't really focused on a particular event, but everything that involved Christ's first coming, his earthly life and ministry, his death, resurrection, and exaltation. So it's important to note about prophecy, because when we think about prophecy, we think something that's happening in the future or something that's happening now. And we could quickly forget that what is past to us was future to them. So as the prophets proclaimed these things, they awaited for the coming Messiah. And for us, it has been fulfilled. But we wait, much like they waited, for his second coming now, with eager anticipation under the new covenant for ultimate restoration. So Peter here continues to, to, to use the scriptures. And you know, Peter's understanding into the person of Christ is astonishing. You know, you, he's quoting Old Testament passages and Peter presented Christ according to the scriptures as he preaches to the crowd. He calls Jesus the suffering servant, linking him to Isaiah, the Moses-like prophet in Deuteronomy, the seed of Abraham, So Peter is using Old Testament imagery to weave this biblical tapestry that forms a thorough and magnificent portrait of Jesus. His understanding was amazing. And notice he uses three strands of important historical periods in Israel's history. He mentions Moses when they're entering the uh, the promised land. Then he mentions Samuel, person who anointed David in the Davidic kingdom. And now he mentions the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant to remember your heritage, remember your history and remember your heritage. And read with me in verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent to him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He came to bless, not to curse, not to condemn. So remember your heritage and remember your history. And repentance is still required to be able to obtain the promise he gave to Abraham. And because of Jesus' first coming, the covenant promise is not only given to Israel but to all nations, the Gentile nations, And Paul writes to Ephesians, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. And just... Like the Israelites, we too now, the Gentile nations, also have to repent. Repentance is is also required to be able to enter a right relationship with God and to enter his kingdom. And repentance simply means to stop placing our hopes and our own happiness and our achievement or pleasures of sin and to turn to Christ and bank our hope on him and his promises and the promise of refreshment because we are now right with God and in the presence of God. 
and the promise to gain entry and access when the kingdom finally comes at the end of the age. So what are the implications of all this? I think regarding the New Testament, see, prophets were foundational to the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that. And, but there are no more new revelations. See, we receive the full revelation in the person of Jesus and the whole counsel of God. So anybody that comes and says, thus saith the Lord, they must be in 100% agreement with the word of God. And Jesus' prophetic role continues through the church who are now ambassadors through whom God makes his appeal. And as the Old Testament prophets were God's primary means of communicating to his people now here in the new covenant age, the church is God's primary means to speak to the world. And we act as prophets by speaking the prophetic truth of God's word and message into our culture and throughout the world and we give the gospel, the truth to people who desperately need it and we sound the alarm calling people to repentance and live a life of faith and obedience. You know, when I was reading this passage, being honest, I was reading Peter and he comes in guns blazing. Man, you killed Jesus. You need to repent or you're gonna be destroyed. If I'm being honest, it kind of grates against my 2019 sensibilities. I kept thinking like, Peter, couldn't you have been nicer? Couldn't you have been more tactful? I suspect if there was a direct question to Peter, he would have just said, no, I was fine with it. Jesus didn't die to make you nice. To be clear, there's something to be said about being tactful, winsome, and understanding nuance, seeking to understand people, other people's perspective and patiently understanding how they arrived at that conclusion. Yeah, there's something to that, but never at the expense of truth. The truth being that we stand condemned without a savior. And unless we repent of unbelief, we will not gain access into the kingdom of God. It's either justification or condemnation. You know, and I even think about Peter's life as I was reading this, and you look at him and John and in the Gospels, uh, the, the days before Pentecost, and you know what strikes you is their slowness, their failure, their lack of understanding. You know, the, son, the very Son of God was there with them for three years. He pulled them out of society and made this inner circle of students and friends constantly teaching him. And they were present whenever he taught. They saw his miracles. They could ask him questions. And he was always there patiently answering and explaining things. You think at the end of the Gospel of John, he said, man, if we wrote every account, there wouldn't be enough place to fill all the books in the world. And the apostles, they were there for most of it, if not all of it. They saw these things. Never did men have such a marvelous opportunity for learning and grasping the truth when they had direct access to the Son of God. And yet, they were slow to learn, they lacked comprehension, they stumbled and they fumbled. Things were explained to them often, but yet they failed to understand, and even Jesus had to rebuke them sharply sometimes. And when Jesus was speaking of him going to the cross, his intimate death, Peter said, no, you're not gonna die, you can't die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. And when he finally did die on the cross, the disciples, they were upset and bewildered beside themselves, completely distraught. 
until the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, Jesus finally reveals himself to him. He says, oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, the disciples in the gospel settings, they were ambitious, you know, jealous of one, or one another, wanting preeminence, quarreling over silly things, minor details, and you just think of yourself like, man, get a grip. And when the moment of truth came, they all left Jesus. They were fearful, denied him. Here, Peter preaching to the Jews, saying, you denied Christ. He did the same thing. But the difference is he received forgiveness. He's repented from his cowardness. And now he's bold. And you, can even, you can't even recognize him. You can't even recognize him. Reading Acts 2 and 3, and here's Peter and the apostles with a clear grasp of the truth, the ability to state it. They could argue it. They could reason with it. They had a command presence about themselves that arrested the entire crowd. And even the Sanhedrin's were amazed at Peter and John's boldness and fearlessness. What changed? What changed? See, Christianity isn't something that you just add on to your life. No, it changes the whole of your being, starting in the center and working on its way out. It's not an addendum or an appendix or an afterthought. Not something we simply do on Sundays. No, Christianity is a power that changes men and women through and through. And it changed Peter and John. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and all old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Some people don't ever think of God or Christ or Christianity until illness happens or difficult circumstances comes about. But no, people have been changed by, the, by Jesus. It's at the center of their lives. There's no uncertainty of what they believe. The apostles, no, they weren't apologetic or half-hearted. No, they weren't ashamed of the message of the gospel. No, they exalted the gospel. They gloried in the gospel. Then they needed to tell everyone because there is a joy that they didn't know existed and they needed to share it. And even Peter later describes it as joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know, a little bit about myself. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a broken home. You know, my biological dad bailed on us, and I had an abusive stepfather, abusive uncle. My mom worked seven, you know, 16-hour days. After school, I would try to find, figure out things to do because I didn't want to go home because, you know, I might get beat for whatever reason. And I remember it was really left to myself as a child and um, had almost no Christian influence whatsoever. And I remember hating God for my circumstances. And that bitterness burned within me and it brought rot to my soul. But there were people who took their role as prophet and ambassadors of Christ seriously and shared the gospel with me. And though I was resistant initially, they just kept sharing it. While they were caring and tactful and compassionate, they didn't compromise on the truth. The truth being that despite my circumstances, I stood condemned before a holy God. And I needed to repent. And I needed to stop looking at myself as a victim and realize according to the cross, I'm the greatest perpetrator in human history. So you look at the Sanhedrin Council and the rulers that authorized the execution of Christ, I stood with them. It was my sins that required the sacrifice of Christ. 
But God captured my heart. And he gave me a time of refreshing and started restoring my life with a new knowledge of God and a new understanding and experience that gave clarity and understanding to life to view Christ in a new light. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that I believe in the sun that I see it risen. Not that I see the sun risen, but by it I see all things. That it illuminates life. When Jesus is at the center, things begin to make sense. Unbelief had gone, uncertainty and doubt had gone, bitterness and resentment had gone, and joy and happiness came flooding in. And I was finally at peace with God. That God had me in his heart and his mind throughout eternity, and he sent his son to die for us. And he was there every moment of my misery, just like he was there every moment of Christ's beating. And God sent forth his spirit and of his son into our hearts that we we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. And therefore, we're no longer slaves, but sons. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you know what it's like for a guy like me to go through what I've been through to know that I have a heavenly father and he calls me son? It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. So then, as prophets and ambassadors, we need to take our calling seriously and be that to other people, sounding the alarm, sounding the warning, being faithful to proclaim the truth of God's word and be that prophet to somebody else because he might get asked to preach one day at a church. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for sending Jesus, and we praise you. Amen.